Welcome to Fire of Genius, a podcast dedicated to all things intellectual property presented by the Indiana University Maurer School of Law's IP Theory Journal. My name is Megan Wheeler, and I'm a 3L at Maurer. I'm the audio editor for Volume 12 of Fire of Genius, and I'm joined by one of our 2L associates, Rob Kessling. I'm sure you all know him from his Fire of Genius podcast, but Rob, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi, my name is Rob Kessling. I'm a 2L associate for IP Theory. Uh, and I'm interested in patent law. On this episode, we are pleased to be joined by Ms. Laura Dolbao. Ms. Dolbao provide, provided us her manuscript entitled Barring Judicial Review. Her article not only creates a taxonomy of statutes barring judicial review, but also argues that other oversight means should be implemented when there is a judicial rebar, judicial review bar. Ms. Dolbao, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. So first of all, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. I'm excited to speak with you today. Um, I'm a Sharswood Fellow at the University of Pennsylvania Cary Law School. My research focuses on the intersection of patent and administrative law, and I'm currently teaching a seminar about regulations that affect drug prices, including patent practices. So your article that you sent us is very comprehensive and it covers many areas outside of intellectual property. Because we are an intellectual property publication, however, we will be predominantly discussing um, your example throughout on the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office's Interpartist Review. To our listeners, um, I would recommend listening to our podcasts that our associate Rob, Graham, and Asan did last semester on interpartist review. Ms. Stolbao, would you mind providing a brief summary of your article for our listeners? Sure. So this article conducts a survey of laws that expressly bar judicial review over agency actions and the alternative oversight tools that are available to monitor agency actions that are barred from judicial review. And it's fitting that we're going to focus on the patent example today because I got the idea for this paper when I was clerking on the federal circuit. Um, there's a review bar in the patent world dealing with inter partes review or IPRs, which I'm sure we're going to talk about in more detail soon. But that review bar was generating a lot of controversy when I was clerking. The Supreme Court had weighed in twice on how broadly the review bar should be interpreted and parties continued to bring challenges in litigation trying to get around the review bar. So all of this controversy got me interested in whether the patent review bar was an anomaly or whether there were other review bars in the administrative state. Um, and it also made me think about whether there were other tools to oversee agencies when there's no judicial review. So that's sort of the background on the paper. And generally, I did a survey of the U.S. Code on Westlaw to search for laws that barred judicial review. And I found 190 provisions. So I think that shows they're a regular feature of the administrative state. Most of the review bars I found related to internal management decisions. So these are things like how agencies exercise their enforcement discretion, how they allocate resources or manage personnel. And I think we'll talk about this more later, but I also found that there were many alternative oversight structures for these decisions. Could you tell us a little bit about the policies supporting or opposing the use of judicial review? Sure. So the availability of judicial review is something that's debated a lot among scholars and in the courthouse. So generally, a major policy 
supporting judicial review is that it provides a mechanism to monitor agencies to make sure they follow their statutory mandates. Judicial review also allows a neutral third party to review agency actions to prevent abuses of discretion, and it promotes transparency by requiring agencies to explain their decisions and to issue a public decision that the court can review, and then the court issues a public decision about whether the action was lawful. So it helps the public monitor what's going on. Furthermore, when an individual is impacted concretely by an agency action, judicial review provides an avenue for that individual to vindicate their interests if they feel harmed by an agency action. But despite all of these benefits of judicial review, some commentators have expressed concern that maybe judicial review is too widely available. So even though it has a lot of benefits for democratic values, judicial review can also slow down agencies and it imposes costs both on the agencies and the courts, which are funded by taxpayers and have limited resources. There's also been some concern recently about judicial review being used in partisan ways, but that's a larger issue for another conversation. It's also worth noting that Regardless of this policy debate about whether or not judicial review is good or bad, there's empirical data that shows most agency actions are never subjected to judicial review at all in practice anyway. So I think that highlights the importance of alternative oversight tools. Yeah, so you suggest that widespread availability of judicial review increases incentives to use policymaking tools that are not subject to review. Just to clarify, do you mean judicial rulings in this case? Yeah, so this argument is referencing a seminal article that professors Jillian Metzger and Kevin Stack wrote called Internal Administrative Law. They published that a few years ago in the Michigan Law Review. And so to give some background on that, generally in administrative law, judicial review is only available if an agency action is final and courts have interpreted final action to be one that creates legally binding obligations. So often when agencies issue guidance documents, they are considered non-final and can get out of judicial review because guidance documents are often not binding. They use words like the agency may consider certain factors. So this is very different than regulations passed through notice and comment that bind agencies and require all agency officials to follow the rule. So professors Metzger and Stack argue that when judicial review is widely available, agencies might try to insulate themselves from judicial review to save costs and avoid external review. And one way they may do that is by switching over to guidance that's not binding um, or maybe even not publishing their policies at all because both of those could potentially um, insulate them from judicial review by making their action not final or not binding. Um, and so they argue that in this way, having too much judicial review could be bad because if agencies switch to non-binding policies or not publishing their decisions, it makes it harder for the public and stakeholders to know how the agency is going to be exercising its discretion. And if it's not published, it makes it hard for anyone to know even what the agency is doing. So they argue that taking away judicial review might actually encourage agencies to just be more open and transparent about their binding policies. 
When would you say judicial review is most important? It seems like that would be likely be most important when an agency is working outside the scope of its authority. Yes, for sure. I think judicial review is really important when an agency is doing something that's clearly outside its statutory authority. I also think judicial review is really important when individual rights are at stake, particularly constitutional rights. So there are a couple examples I found in the paper that I think are more concerning examples of review bars. They differed from those traditional internal management decisions. So these involve review bars over fact determinations, underlying decisions about whether individual veterans are entire, entitled to benefits and whether individual immigrants must be deported. So in both of these situations, the individual involved has a concrete interest at stake that is very important, either their entitlement to monetary benefits or their liberty interest in being in the United States. So in both of these situations, I think it's very important to have an Article III court review agency decisions to ensure that agencies don't abuse their discretion or violate individuals' constitutional rights. Both of these examples do provide for limited judicial review. So both the Veterans and Immigration Review Bar allow review of constitutional questions and legal questions, but they bar review over certain fact decisions and exercises of discretion. So this is these are situations where Congress struck a balance for efficiency versus also protecting individual rights. But I think the total bar on factual determinations can be concerning. So there was a decision last term called Patel where the Supreme Court reviewed a decision where an immigration judge made a clear factual error and the court held that was covered by a review bar and couldn't be corrected anyway. So I think that's much more troubling than the patent review bar about whether or not to institute an inter partes review. Because in the patent context, um, when the patent office decides whether or not to institute inter partes review, it's not affecting concrete interests yet. If they just decline to institute review, the patent stays in force. And if a patent challenger is sued for infringement, they can attack the patent at district court. On the flip side, if the patent office does institute an inter partes review and reviews claims and cancels any patent claims, there's judicial review at that point too for the patent owner. So I think those are less concerning. You recommend implementing other means of oversight when judicial review is barred. What are some of those means, particularly in some of the instances that you just previously mentioned with immigration and with the patent review process? Yeah, there are three broad categories of alternative oversight tools that I discuss in the paper. These are political oversight, internal supervision, and public participation. So political oversight involves oversight by Congress and higher level executive officials within the agency or the president's office who are politically accountable and can monitor how agencies are executing programs. Internal supervision refers to internal procedures that bind agency officials, as we were discussing about um, the internal administrative law article. So these are things like binding guidance, procedural regulations, or review within an agency. And then public participation involves notice and comment procedures or meetings with stakeholders to discuss their views with an agency. 
I also include in that category transparency requirements, which require agencies to publish their decisions. And these play a really important role in allowing the public and stakeholders to monitor agencies. So there's an interesting point you asked about the veterans context. I note in the paper that at least explicitly in the laws creating the veterans and immigration review bars, there's not many alternative oversight tools required. And some scholars have expressed concern about how those adjudication systems are overseen. So I highlight those in the paper as areas for um, potential concern and attention of future legislators. But in the patent context, I use the patent example as a case study to look more broadly at how the patent office has implemented this review bar. And I found there were a lot of alternative oversight tools. So the patent office is required to publish all of its decisions about whether or not to institute inter partes review. They're required to give patent owners an opportunity to respond to petitions for inter partes review before the patent office makes a decision. They issued procedural rules that govern IPRs and that went through notice and comment that allowed stakeholders to comment and the agency actually amended its rule in response to some of the patent owner comments. There's also been political oversight. The current director of the patent office was asked about the institution policy during her confirmation hearings. There's been proposed legislation and the patent office recently just issued binding guidance about how it will exercise its discretion to either institute or deny inter partes review. They also voluntarily requested comments about that policy. So there's basically, there's been a lot going on to oversee how the patent office is exercising its discretion. You mentioned a case that will ask whether the review bar covers not just individual decisions about whether to institute review, but also the patent office's general policy about factors it will consider its discretion to, de to deny inter partes review. How do you think these decisions will go? Yeah, so a group of technology companies recently brought suit under the Administrative Procedure Act trying to challenge a general policy that has become known as the NHK FINTIV rule. The Federal Circuit heard oral argument in this case in January. It's called Apple v. Vidal, if anyone's interested in looking it up. Um, so as some background, the NHK FINTIV rule announced factors that the Patent Trial and Appeal Board will consider when deciding whether or not to deny inter partes review. And the goal here was to promote efficiency by reducing overlap between district court litigation over patents and inter partes review. So the way the system currently works is that when a party is sued for patent infringement, the party has one year to file a petition for inter partes review. If this happens, the district court may choose to pause its proceedings while the patent office proceedings are pending. If the Patent Trial and Appeal Board institutes review and cancels patent claims, this might reduce the issues that will be litigated in district court later on. The Patent Trial and Appeal Board noted, though, that if the district court proceedings are moving forward at the same time as a inter partes review, that might not be efficient for both the Patent Office and the district court to be considering similar issues at the same time. So in a public published institution decision, one 
Patent Trial and Appeal Board panel listed factors to consider when there's a parallel district court case, including whether the district court has issued a stay, whether there's overlap in the issues involved, and whether there's a trial date coming up in the district court decision. So in, in this case, I'm talking about a trial was scheduled for six months away from when the PTAB was considering whether or not to institute an inter partes review. So after this decision came out, the patent office designated it as precedential, and it became known along with another precedential decision as the NHK FinTIF rule. So a group of technology companies has tried to challenge this rule under the Administrative Procedure Act, even though the Supreme Court has repeatedly held that the patent review bar we've been talking about precludes review over individual decisions about whether or not to institute an IPR, the companies argue that this review bar does not apply to a generally applicable policy about the general factors the patent office will consider. The patent office disagrees and is arguing that the review bar does cover this general guidance. So it's hard to predict how the case will go, but I think there's a good chance the federal circuit will hold that the review bar precludes the APA challenge to the NHK FENTIV rule. So as I mentioned, the Supreme Court has twice upheld this review bar and interpreted it pretty broadly. The Supreme Court has held that the review bar covers decisions closely tied to application of the statutes about whether or not to institute an inter partes review. So I think the factors the PTAB considers in exercising this discretion are closely related to that decision. There's some similar DC circuit case law on Medicare review bars that comes to the same conclusion. It basically holds that if the challenge is in effect trying to overturn a decision that is barred from judicial review, then the review bar covers the challenge. But in oral argument about this case, the federal circuit judges expressed concern about what you asked in an earlier question of what if the agency does something, the patent office acts clearly outside its authority and they're concerned about striking a balance that gives the agency discretion, but also has guardrails if the agency does something clearly outside the scope of its authority. So I think the DC circuit and Supreme Court precedent here strikes a balance that's useful. In those cases, courts have held that review bars preclude review over the procedures the agency used to reach a decision and its explanation for the decision. But if the agency does something obviously outside its authority or obviously unconstitutional, courts have noticed that judicial review may be available. In Cuozo, one of the Supreme Court cases interpreting the patent bar, the court suggested that review might be available if the patent office engages in shenanigans and so I think that's a framework that the federal circuit might look to. And it seems unlikely that the NHK Fentive rule rises to the level of shenanigans because these are legitimate factors about efficiency and trying to uphold the purpose of the America Invents Act in allowing for efficient challenges before the patent office. So it seems unlikely that this is shenanigans, but you never know. One other possibility that the judges suggested during oral argument was that perhaps they could review the procedures the patent office used. So for example, should it have gone through notice and comment rulemaking instead of issuing a guidance document and an 
individual precedential decision. There's some DC circuit case law that I think suggests the judicial review bar should preclude review over procedures. But of course, the federal circuit is not bound by DC circuit precedent. So it'll be interesting to see what they do. And one last thing I should note, there's also a question about standing in that case. So it's possible the federal circuit could dismiss it on standing grounds without interpreting the review bar. I'm becoming more and more convinced. It seems like a pretty reasonable factor of the NHK Fintiv rule. If one proceeding's going on, why would they instigate another? It ends up being quasi who has the bigger money bag and patent holders would then be spending lots of money to defend their patent, right? So the Quozo decision that you mentioned left open the possibility that judicial review bar could be ignored. When the PTO engaged in shenanigans, it seems obvious that the court invoked shenanigans because it didn't know how to define this exception any more precisely. Should this cause us to worry that the court really hasn't worked out its thinking when judicial review bars should be respected and when they shouldn't be? Yeah, I think that's a very valid point. And I think that is true throughout all of the case law. So when there's been constitutional questions, instead of grappling with whether or not review bars can cover constitutional claims, the courts have just consistently interpreted them not to preclude constitutional challenges. But there's questions with that too that could be unclear. A lot of administrative law challenges could be characterized as due process challenges, and it's unclear what the scope of that would be. But generally, the way the lower courts have dealt with it, the DC Circuit is where I found the most case law on this. They've sort of drawn a line of things that are obviously outside the scope of authority. And so one example there was there was a law that allowed TSA to calculate fees based on passengers for airlines. And TSA calculated it by including things other than just passengers. And the law was very clear about what they were supposed to be using. So the DC Circuit had that as an example of something clearly outside the authority. But I think you're right. There's a big gray area there on what counts as shenanigans. Yeah, it would be interesting to sort of compile what is shenanigans and what they exactly mean by that. Is it just the statute? Is it court precedent, which we've already sort of discussed is not as democratic a process? Or is the USPTO maybe going to have to go back and justify some of their decisions on this again to stakeholders? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's a really interesting question. We'll see. I think it's really just a reservation for like, if it if they do something that looks really bad, courts can can intervene. <laughs> so moving on to the next question, do you think there would be sort of a conflict of interest on behalf of the USPTO with interpartish review? Sort of in my thinking, no one wants to admit fault for initial approval of patents that may or may not open uh, USPTO to liability. Would it then be unfair to bar judicial review where USPTO denies it, which is within their discretion, or is this sort of a misguided understanding? I think that's a really interesting question, and it brings up a really important point about agency functioning and the policies behind these review bars. So one important consideration here is that the patent office employees who decide whether or not to issue patents in the first place are different than the patent office employees who consider inter partes review petitions. So when someone files a patent application, that's reviewed by a patent examiner and that examiner decides whether or not to issue the patent. But when an inter partes review petition is filed later after the patent has issued, 
it's reviewed by patent trial and appeal board judges, which are administrative law judges. So there, there's a separation of functions within the agency and having the administrative law judges adds a level of independence from that first initial decision. So I think that's a really important point about another reason that this review bar is less concerning because if the petitions were being filed with the examiner, there definitely could be potential for bias and it would be a lot more concerning to not have a third party look at those decisions. You explained the processes that the USPTO went through in setting standards for determining whether the patent trial and appeal board would consider exercising its discretion to deny inter parte review. Is there anything else you feel the USPTO should have done? Yeah, so I think the patent office did a good job here. I think they engaged in a lot of procedures and explanations that were helpful. So as I mentioned earlier, the NHK Fentive rule announced factors that the Patent Trial and Appeal Board will weigh when deciding to exercise its discretion to deny inter partes review. And those factors generally look at the status of parallel district court litigation. And so the NHK Fentive rule sparked a lot of backlash from stakeholders. I think one major concern with this rule was parties who are frequently sued for patent infringement on the basis of relatively weak patents were concerned that this would reduce their ability to challenge the patents and IPR proceedings, which are generally cheaper and shorter than district court proceedings. But the policy, as it came under significant public scrutiny, the patent office issued a request for comment to let stakeholders share their views specifically with the patent office. And it's since issued binding guidance that clarifies a few aspects of this rule and responds to some of the stakeholder concerns. So I think that was a good way to address the public backlash. And the patent office has since suggested that it's considering going through formal notice and comment rulemaking. So I actually think the Binding guidance and requests for comment has given a lot of opportunities for the public to be involved. But if they go through notice and comment, that'll be an extra step for more stakeholders to share their views. It will require the patent office to respond to significant comments. And that might provide a little more certainty because notice and comment rules are more binding on an agency than its guidance, which it can just change at any time. So if I'm understanding correctly, there were already amendments to the NHK Fintive rule as a result of stakeholder backlash, and now they are about to make even more amendments. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So the binding guidance that Director Vidal issued recently made some clarifications, I guess, to the rule. And then she also suggested that the office is considering instituting a formal notice and comment rulemaking. So that would provide another proceeding where they may make further refinements or changes based on stakeholder comments. Would you briefly explain the Accardi principle? Is there a possibility that, that the Accardi principle would be applicable to USPTO discretionary denial of IPRs? And if a court would, it would engage in the IPR review where it's wrongfully denied? Yeah, so the Accardi principle is a general rule that agencies must follow their own regulations. It typically only comes into play when agencies have issued formal rules through notice and comment. So I think the Patent Trial and Appeal Board might be able to avoid it for now, since so far there's only been guidance. 
But the case law is a bit unclear on exactly when the Accardi principle applies. The guidance is binding, so maybe they could invoke it. But the Patent Office has also suggested that it might go through notice and comment rulemaking for this policy. So if so, then I think the Accardi principle could come into play. And the way that would work would be if an individual PTAB panel didn't follow this policy, if it didn't consider the factors it was supposed to, or if it disregarded some factors or broke from the policy in some way, that could be considered a violation of its own regulations and violate the Accardi principle. So sometimes there can be judicial review for that. Okay, but that's a later down the road question to be answered, and hopefully it won't have to be, right? Yes, exactly. It's <laughs> like a good way to hold agencies accountable for their own policymaking and binding guidance. Yes, definitely. I was surprised that 65% of judicial bar statutes covering internal management decisions expressly require other oversight structures. Going into your research, were you expecting this high of a number of oversight structures? Did you include statutes that don't explicitly have oversight provisions, but the agency implements them like our inter-partis review statute? Yeah. So I didn't have many expectations about oversight structures. I went into this just curious about do they increase oversight or do more oversight when they bar judicial review. Um, but I was a little surprised to see that when I started reading the statutes that expressly bar judicial review, a lot of them expressly required other types of oversight structures. So that I started tracking it and I report that in the paper as well. And I think this shows Congress has the institutional capacity to weigh these different types of structures when it creates a program. So I looked as a general matter at the explicit alternative oversight structures in review bars when I looked through the 190 different provisions. Um, but it's totally possible that agencies could voluntarily um, engage in other oversight structures or other statutes besides the ones I was looking at could require other oversight structures. So to get a sense of the bigger picture, I used the patent example and one Medicare example to take a broader look at the general context. And so the patent one we've been talking about, there were a lot of voluntary things the patent office did besides what the law expressly requires publishing the decision and requiring an opportunity to respond. But the patent office also voluntarily issued binding guidance, did the request for comment, lots of other stuff. And same in the Medicare context, I found that with respect to review bars over Medicare payment decisions, that Medicare had issued a lot of publicly available guidance, and it goes through an extensive notice and comment process before it sets payment rates. Uh, your article argues that courts should consider the availability of alternative oversight tools when construing review bars, and that policymakers should do the same when designing regulatory programs. Would you argue that where there is a judicial review bar and no other oversight mechanisms, then the court should be more skeptical of the bar and overrule it? Yeah, so I think courts should be more skeptical, but not necessarily overrule the review bar. So when I make that argument, I'm talking about instances where there's a dispute about how broadly a review bar should be interpreted. So although express review bars are often considered to be clear statements that overcome the presumption of judicial review, 
there can still be questions about how broad or narrow the review bar is. So an example is with the patent review bar. It was undisputed that the bar on institution decisions applied when the patent office denied inter partes review. But when it granted inter partes review, some parties tried to attack that decision on appeal from a final written decision. So when they appealed the final decision, they added a claim that said, and the patent office shouldn't have instituted review in the first place. So those were the disputes that went up to the Supreme Court. And that's what I mean by it interpreted broadly. It wasn't necessarily unambiguous, but the court decided it should also apply when the patent office institutes review. So in situations where there are no alternative oversight structures or not many, then I think courts should be more skeptical about doing that, about deciding to interpret the bar broadly. I also think the political economy of the regulatory regime matters. So the patent context is one where both parties typically have a lot of resources and have lawyers to advocate for their interests. And when the patent office took its voluntary procedures to request comment, they were able to navigate that system and a lot of parties were able to file comments. But in other situations where parties may be less likely to have their voices heard, like the veterans context or immigration, I think that can be more concerning as well. Now, I know this next question is humongous, uh, but I felt compelled to ask it since it's also in the news. In 2019, a majority of the Supreme Court in Kaiser v. Wilkie hinted that one day Chevron could be overruled explicitly. A concern Chevron raises is that, in, for some cases, it substitutes the agency's preferred view for what the law should have said in place of the legislation that was actually enacted. Would an overruling of Chevron have a severe impact on judicial review bars and all binding precedent of the PTAB in particular? Yeah, that's a great question, and we can't talk about administrative law these days without talking about the potential for overruling Chevron, so I'm glad you brought it up. Generally, I don't think overruling Chevron would have a huge effect on these judicial review bars and the PTAB precedent, because review bars are situations where Congress has used pretty clear language, and a lot of the decisions interpreting review bars have held that the statute is clear, but Chevron comes into play when a statute is ambiguous, so when there's uncertainty about what the law means. I haven't seen courts apply Chevron deference to agency interpretations about how broad or narrow judicial review bars are when they're arguing about those ambiguous situations. Perhaps that could be because of some of the issues you raised earlier about potential concerns with agency bias. Certainly agencies are more likely to argue that their decisions are not subject to judicial review. But anyway, I think that's a practice we could expect courts to continue if Chevron is overruled, that they would just interpret the law either as clear or reach their own decision about the best way to interpret the law. Furthermore, courts have consistently held that if an agency acts clearly outside the scope of its authority, the review bar likely doesn't cover that action. So that would be in line with overruling Chevron anyway, if the court thought the agency was doing something that was inappropriate, they could hold that it was acting clearly outside its statutory authority. So that would be the Cardi principle then that would that would kind of already fall under a different precedent. 
Yeah, so I think it could be both. So it could also apply like if an agency did something that was clearly outside its jurisdiction, like the patent office can't consider every ground of patentability in inter partes review. They can't consider written description challenges, for example. So if they granted a petition saying there's a written description problem here, that would be clearly outside its jurisdiction. And the review bar case law has suggested if an agency does something clearly outside its authority, then maybe there could be a review. At the same time, the Chevron deference case law has held that there's no Chevron deference when an agency acts outside its authority or acts unreasonably. So I think there's alignment already in what courts would be likely to review in like setting aside a review bar would be a similar effect to setting aside Chevron deference, if that makes sense. Yeah, thanks for explaining that. Mm -hmm. What was your process in re researching all 190 judicial review, review bar statutes? <laughs> so I searched for various phrases on Westlaw. I started with the phrase final and non-appealable because that's the phrase that appears in the patent review bar, but I didn't find many other ones with that exact language. So then I tried some other phrases like unreviewable and shall not be subject to judicial review. I also saw there was a Medicare review bar being litigated in the Supreme Court that used the phrase no administrative or judicial review. So I added that to my search and there's a lot of Medicare laws that use that phrase. So that was a bunch of them. Then once I located the laws, I read through them to determine whether they actually created a review bar. So. I, I checked to see whether it was actually totally foreclosing judicial review over an agency action. Some of them might have just said no judicial review after two years of the decision or something like that. I didn't include those in the sample. Oh, and I should note, it's possible that other review bars exist. I found as many as I could based on my own human capacity, but there could be other phrases that also bar judicial review. The purpose of this paper is to identify the phenomenon. It shows review bars are a regular occurrence in the administrative state, and it shows some patterns in the types of actions that Congress has barred from judicial review. And it certainly is a very comprehensive and, and very informative article. Thank you for passing it along to IP theory to to interview you on. I, I had a really great time reading it and you bring up a lot of the patterns that we could expect. I guess that's a good segue into our final question. What do you think is next for your research? Would you continue to study intellectual property structures? Are you intending to focus on administrative agency law? Yeah, so I'm definitely interested in continuing to study structures at the patent office and the general regulation of the patent system. So that's how I view my research as intersecting patent and administrative law. I'm currently working on a paper that looks at structures for the public to retain control over patents through things like government use of patented inventions or compulsory licensing. I'm also interested in doing further research one day about whether these review bars affect how agency officials behave, perhaps by conducting interviews with maybe patent office employees about whether the review bar affects their decisions. Yeah, compulsive licensing seems to be a hot topic as we consider environmental climate change and what that means for our, our future. So I'd be interested to read that as it comes out as well. Mm -hmm. And best of awesome. luck on that research. Thank you.
And with that, that concludes all the questions we have for you today. Uh, we'd like to give you the last word if you have anything else you'd like to add. I don't think so. Just thanks so much for having me here. And thanks for looking at my paper. It's been really fun to chat with you and hear your questions. Yeah, thank you so thank much. You. And with that, thank you for joining us on this episode of Fire of Genius. You can follow us on Twitter at C-I-P-R-Mauer, I-P-T-H, or reach out to us on our website at iptheory.indiana.edu. Thank you for listening, and we hope you tune in again for our next episode of Fire of Genius.